13. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. Please be seated. Let me encourage you to grab a Bible, be turning that to 1 Chronicles, and hopefully you got a piece of paper that looks eerily similar to this one. If not, those are located on that uh, little podium there in the back. You can grab one of those and stick that into your uh, booklet as we are looking at the individual books of the Bible and while you're making your way to 1 Corinthians. For all of you who are visiting with us, uh, we certainly do appreciate that. We value your uh, visitation with us. Hope you have a great time here. I hope you come back and see us any opportunity that you have. There's one visiting with us by whom certain markers are set, at least, at least in my life. I met this kid who played trumpet for the uh, band at Jacksonville State through a guy by the name of Josh Romo, and I didn't think anything much about him. Uh, I actually called Josh and said, I need some folks from the college there to help me work camp. And Dalton was one of them. And uh, when I look and see him, I see a bridge to the past and think of folks like Homer Smith. You don't know Homer, probably. Homer was an elder at the church in Jacksonville, Alabama. But better than that, at least in my mind, Homer Smith sold me my first drum. He was a, a music director. He was the di director at, the, at Jacksonville, wasn't he? Yeah. Then I look at Dalton and I see he left... And I called him up and said, what about camp again? He said, I don't know. And I, he said, because I've got this group. And I said, well, bring them. <laughs> That's you guys. I didn't know you guys unless I knew him. I didn't know the past and how it would affect me. And he reminds me of that. So I am grateful to have him here with us. Let's look at First Chronicles. The key words in there are worship, praise, prayer, and glory. And if you have to assign a key verse, Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 17, 14, the key phrase is that thou reignest over all. The topic of this book is kind of a Reader's Digest version. For you who don't know about Reader's Digest, this the cliffs, well, you don't know about that either. When I say shortened, do you know that? Okay, there used to be books that were sold. That, this is for educational purposes only. There used to be small booklets sold uh, that were yellow and black. And they were written by, I guess, a guy named Cliff. And they were Cliff's notes. And he would write them about a long book you would be assigned. And it was, you know, about 60 pages. You could read that and kind of know and maybe make a D on the test. But 
Don't do that, but they have, those things do exist. This is a smaller version of the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, as we look at 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Uh, this particular 1st Chronicles deals as a supplement to 2nd Kings. It deals with the royal seed line of David and his kingship. It deals with the tribe of Judah more than it deals with the tribe of Israel. While 1st and 2nd Samuel are more political in nature, First Chronicles is more spiritual in nature. And so as we look at it, we have uh, set ourselves a good background with looking at the kings and how they sort of maneuvered through and how those prophets dealt with those kings. And now we're going to step back for a moment and look at the nation of Israel and how they acted spiritually. That's a whole lot different than how folks act uh, politically. And so, what we find really in this book for a majority of the time is the prayer life of David. So we're going to find ourselves in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 as we're continuing to follow that thread. That thread that started in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that thread that runs throughout the book of Revelation, that thread that touches every single book of the 66, that thread that either tells us Jesus the Christ is coming, Jesus the Christ is here, or Jesus Christ is coming back, so be ready. We find ourselves in the book of 1 Chronicles. And there's a problem. You can't see what I can see. There's a problem in 1 Chronicles 15, and every time we go the wrong direction. How many of you who are less than 25 have ever heard a sermon on sanctification singly? How many of you over 25 have? You know why we don't hear it very much? Sanctification, bishop, Pastor, grace, and even love, those words have been stolen. Not by any malicious means, but by a misuse of the religious world, they have been put into a different category. And when we hear, hear words like sanctification, we tend to back up because we kind of know what's going to happen. I was in sixth grade, came in school on a Monday at, you may know where Hill Elementary is. It's, it's a small little elementary school in the hamlet of Munford, Alabama. And she said, I was sanctified yesterday. And she began to tell a story to all of us who had gathered around. And it first started to sound like a, a fictional story. And then it, then it morphed into a story uh, that would terrorize a six-year-old or a sixth grader. It was the scariest thing I've ever heard. Now, there were only really three or four choices for religions in Munford, Alabama. The, the town in which I grew up held a whopping thousand folks. 
Maybe. It has blossomed now. There are 1,100. You could be a member of the church, and about 350 people, maybe 400 on a good day, were. You could be a member of the Baptist church, and about 100 people were. You could be a member of the Methodist church, and probably... 30 or 40 people were. And then you could be a member of the AME church. Maybe 30 or 40. She went to the AME church. And she began to tell me how, or all of us, how that that Holy Ghost fell on her and made her do this and made her do that. And I thought, man, what if he falls on me? She was, in in her best way, describing in sixth grade what she knew to be the process of sanctification. But was she accurate about it? What is sanctification? How does it apply to me? How does it apply to you? And and am I accountable for sanctification? Let's notice what the world says. The world says that sanctification is a work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to turn me from any any desire for sin to become perfect. Notice what he's saying there. A work of the Spirit to turn me from any desire of sin to become perfect. In other words, this is a work that God does on me for which God is completely responsible. Does that sound familiar? Can you read about that anywhere within the Bible? That God's going to make me serve Him or make me reject Him? Perhaps that's not the correct definition. That is uh, the idea that she was explaining to us. Here's the correct definition. Here's your Hebrew word for the night. That's fun, isn't it? That Hebrew word is pronounced Kadesh. In its primitive root, it is an observance from the outside. That is, people looking at me and pronouncing me to be clean or holy or hallow or sacred. But that pronouncement or observance of me being clean is from a self-examination and a self-dedication that I am prepared or purified to keep myself holy. It's, it's an action of what we would think of in, in the New Testament world of repentance. You remember the idea of repentance is changing my mind about what sin is, and that will change my actions toward it? This is the same idea. This is changing the inside of me, and then when Michael and Wendell see me, they then see something different because... It's exuding from the inside out. 
pure sanctification, a purification, an observance of God's law, an idea to keep myself. And it begins with myself. Now notice this. Man, we are still hitting the wrong buttons. Let's look at 1 Chronicles chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. This is also found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Here's where we started. And he said to them, Ye are chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord of God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us. For that we sought him not after the due order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring them up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with staves their own, as Moses commanded them in the word of the Lord. As we back away from the political side of things, what we're going to see is things are not being done the right way. Remember from 2 Kings chapter 5 and Naaman, it is possible that I can believe a lie. You remember that? I mean, not, not I wrote that down, 2 Kings chapter 5. How about 1 Kings chapter 15 with the young prophet who believed the lie, who was killed by that lion on the side of the road? I can believe a lie. I can start out following God correctly, and I can, through my free will given to me by God, stop. I am not... I don't want to use the word obligated. I am not forced by God to completely serve Him if I say I'm going to serve Him and then three months later say, you know what, I'm not going to. If I decide I'm not going to, well then I can stop. Just as much as I can start. So as you and I look at the text, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is they are preparing to transport the Ark of the Covenant. When you and I think about transporting the Ark of the Covenant, a lot of times we think of a guy named Uzzah. You remember Uzzah? Uzzah's a well-intentioned fellow. This Ark that's on the back of the, the cart being pulled by these, uh, this, these cattle, apparently the cattle stumble and lurch forward. That box, that Ark, shifts... And it could fall off of that ark. It could fall off that cart. I don't know everything there is to know about God. I do know those things that are specified and those that are revealed within the Bible. I don't know how he would feel about a dented up Ark of the Covenant. But perhaps Uzzah said, I can't let God's box fall. And so he steadies it. And what happens to him? He dies. Now, I'm going to make a statement. I want you to listen and pay attention. I know what it sounds like. Think of this thing logically and understand this statement. If Uzzah 
wanted to live, he should have never touched the box. That sounds awful, doesn't it? Billy, what are you saying? I'm saying if Uzzah wanted to live, he should have followed God's command. Don't touch the box. Matter of fact, don't move it that way. You move it on the shoulders of the sons of Merari. You move it on sticks of shatim wood. That's how you move it. Don't move it any other way. But here even we find them in this text moving it incorrectly. That's why David writes or says there in verse number uh, 14, because you didn't do it the first time, now we're going to have to go back and do it the right way. Question for you, just to think about in your mind, would you say that the Levites were following after God's will generally when they started? Sure. What about now? When David says, because you didn't do it, and realistically, he's including himself in that because we didn't do it the right way the first time. Have to go and redo those things. But preacher, what about the Philistines as they were moving the cart with oxen and carts, uh, the Ark of the Covenant there in 1 Samuel 6? That's a great question. Look at the question. The problem is in word number four. Do you see it yet? You see the problem? Word four? What about the Philistines? They didn't move it on the, on the shoulders of anybody, no. They surely did not. As a matter of fact, at one point when they're sending it back to, to Jerusalem, they're sending it on a cart pulled by a milking cow. You know what God says about that? Nothing. Well, doesn't that just burn you up? God expecting something from someone and not from everybody else? Really, church? Really? Isn't that, isn't that what he expects from us? You do, you do understand that the world outside of the church doesn't live like us, right? Because they're not under that covenant. And understanding that, now we understand why the Philistines could have moved that cart by that, that Ark of the Covenant any way they wanted to. Those laws about that box were not directed toward them. They were directed toward the nation of Israel. The covenant that is seen when that box is seen was not a covenant of the Philistines. It was a covenant of the Jewish nation. And so, what the Philistines got instead of a shiny box were a bunch of rats and hemorrhoids. You want to sign up for that? No. As a matter of fact, if you'll read 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, the interesting uh, trail of devastation that's left when this Ark of the Covenant moves from, from Lordship City to Lordship City is a, just a passel of rats. And everyone within 
sight distance of this Ark of the Covenant having hemorrhoids of Old Testament proportion. The King James Version in its eloquent speech calls them emrods. If you look that up, you know what that is? God saying, this box doesn't belong to you. Get it back where it belongs. So as we look at the Philistines, we say, well, I don't want to be like that. No, we certainly don't. It was not moved, according to 1 Chronicles 15, 13, it was not moved properly in the first place. You see in 13, where notice 13 again. He said in them, you're the chief of the Levites, you have to sanctify yourselves that, that you may bring the Ark of the Covenant to the place that's prepared for it. Here's what we need to understand, number one, 1 Chronicles 15, 13. Being moved doesn't mean it was moved correctly. Moving something doesn't mean it was moved correctly. There is a portion of God's people who would think and teach that there should be nothing emotional found within the service itself. There's another group who says it should only be emotion and emotional based. Well, what's the answer? Well, the answer is <laughs> moved doesn't necessarily move, moved correctly. I don't know how a preacher would stand up here and preach about the Savior on the cross and not move him emotionally. I don't know how a preacher would stand up here and teach about children being offered to gods and not move him emotionally. Or about the nature of the world and how they are lost, and yet we have the very thing they need, and it doesn't move them emotionally. But, I also don't have to have, as my grandfather would say, a dying duck fit in order for you to know that that moves me emotionally. There's a balance somewhere, isn't there? There's a balance there. They're not, they haven't moved this ark correctly, even though they have moved it. Notice this in verse number 12. The, mo the movers were not prepared to move it. They were not prepared. They, they were not sanctified. They had not been set apart. They had not made themselves pure and holy unto God's Word. And thinking I am sanctified, underneath the biblical terms, is completely different from being set apart. That idea of thinking that I am in that group is a lot different from being in that group. Notice again in verse number 13. 
Because you did it not at first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us that we sought after him not after due order. So the priest and the Levites sanctified themselves. So when David said it, they looked at themselves and said, you know what? We may not have thought we had moved to the left or to the right, but as David points this out, we're off kilter and we got to get back to square. I might not know that I think I'm right because I haven't checked the source of righteousness. I may think everything is going okay because I don't regularly put my life up against the standard of God's Word. And that may be our problem. You see, because that standard is so clearly defined, When I put my life, and when I'm, when I'm man enough to put my life up against the standard of God's Word, I will find things I don't like and things that need to change. That's probably just me, right? It is completely logical even to think that these priests and these Levites thought they were going along the right path, thought they were doing what they were doing, never consulting what was going on, but understanding where things kind of had to be. Never realizing how far they are drifting off of center. Till one day... You look up those priests and those Levites of God's people don't look much different from the priests of the idolatrous world. And you say, preacher, that that would never happen. (laughs) All right. Would you like to tell me why they went into Babylonian captivity? Oh, that's, that's a little bit later. Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Notice verse 14. They did see a need, so the priest and the Levite sanctified themselves to bring the ark up to the Lord. They, they did check with God, and if I don't check in with God, that only brings disaster. That only brings me being further and further off of that. They did see that need. Do you think it was a, a joy for David to say, listen, we're, we're wrong here? I don't think it was a joy for David. I don't think it was a joy for the priest and the Levites to have to hear it. Look at 14 part 2, if there was a part 2. We're going to make this up. When they saw that and they changed, they were glad they did. How do I know that? Because the rest of the chapter tells me about them bringing the ark back home and everybody jumping and dancing and having a wonderful time in front of it and congratulating the ark being where it was supposed to be. On the shoulders of the people it was supposed to be on. By the way God had prescribed it. But it was all because, verse 14, they saw a need to change it. When the Levites changed... Here's what they didn't say. Boy, I hope, I hope, and maybe God will forgive. 
Here's an interesting thing about God. When he says he will do something, he will. When he says, if you're righteous and holy, I'll give you heaven, he will. Aren't you glad? Somebody shake or nod. Has it, have we been that long? When he says, if you live outside of the boundaries of what I expect, you will receive hell, guess what? He will. And these priests and Levites knew when they changed that he would forgive. And they were happy for that. They were satisfied with that. When I do these things God's way, God's way, he's going to forgive me. He's going to wipe those things out. He's going to blot those out. Never to bring those up. Never to see those again. And that's what they did in verse number 15. They made themselves holy. They got back in line with what God's will was. And then they put that ark where it was supposed to be, squarely on four shoulders. Squarely on four shoulders to carry it. What about you? Do you think God will do what he says? If God says, repent and be baptized and you'll be saved, do you believe that? If God says, hear me and believe those things and you'll be saved, do you believe that? If God says, if you'll come back to me from wherever you are, I will save you, do you believe that? Those, Israelites, those Levites and priests did. And the idea of sanctification, being set apart for the use of God in this world, has always been a requirement for God's people. Always. There has never been an exception. From the conception of mankind, Adam and Eve, God required that they be set apart. How do you know that, Billy? In the day you eat of it, You shall surely die. How many of you would have eaten it? Mmm. So I'm him. All right, one other truthful brother right over there. The rest of y'all, you know, we don't have a lot of room up here. We'll see you up here in a minute. When he said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, he said, I want you to be separate from what you think is right, what you hope is right, what you might conjure up your mind as being right, and I want you to follow my directive, which is right. And until their teeth pierced the skin of that fruit, they were set apart. God has always wanted us to be set apart. We're supposed to be different. We, as Jesus would call us in Matthew 5, are the lights of this world. We're supposed to be different. Maybe we're like the priests and the Levites in this particular passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where they were following 
but they find themselves not anymore. And they had to make a decision. And here's their decision. Do I follow God and sanctify myself and be rewarded by following Him here and be rewarded with heaven after? Or do I die in my selfish pride? Which happens to be our question tonight. What do I do? Have you put on Christ in baptism? If not, that's the first place to start. That's where you have to begin. Putting on Jesus the Christ in baptism means I have become a child of God's. I am a, a child of the Father. I have all of those rights according to Romans chapter 8 and verse number 17 where I would become a joint heir with Jesus. Now let that sink in for a moment. Because there are those who have had that particular blessing given to them who would simply walk away from it. That's the group of people found in 1 Corinthians 15 who should sanctify themselves and come back to those blessings. Are you set apart, pure and holy for God's work? If not, Respond to God now while we stand and while we sing for your encouragement.